0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So this evening I'd like to talk about wisdom. Wisdom is very important in our Buddhist practice. It's said that there are two arms, the arm of compassion and the arm of wisdom. Both are very important. Both together balance our practice. Compassion is an important underpinning, but it needs to be balanced with wisdom. If we don't have wisdom, our compassion may not be skillful. We may not act in the most skillful way. And with wisdom, compassion is a part of wisdom. We don't have wisdom without compassion. So, both are very important. Wisdom is talked about a lot in Buddhist practice and there are different ways that we can talk about it. Uh, Wisdom is considered one of the paramis or paramitas. Uh, The paramitas are the perfections and wisdom is not only one of the paramitas, but it said that it infuses all of the other factors. So wisdom can stand alone. And I'll read you what this one uh, source says about wisdom. Just as a monk on alms round neglects no house but goes without exception to all families. So perfect wisdom consists in leaving no gaps, leaving nothing out, and of being prepared to learn from all wise people and those more advanced, however young they may be. So wisdom encompasses all. And as I said with the paramitas, wisdom is, penetrates, we can say, all of the paramitas. Without wisdom, they cannot be practiced perfectly. So generosity happens to be the first of the paramitas. And generosity needs wisdom mm-hmm to be practiced correctly or perfectly, we say. Not meaning um, perfect as opposed to imperfect, but um, with integrity or uh, sincerely. Patience is another parami. Patience needs wisdom. There are times that patience may not be the wisest course. So we need the wisdom, the discriminating wisdom, we say, discernment, to know when patience is what's called for and when it's not. Or truthfulness, or determination, or any of the other paramis. We need wisdom to know how to practice them skillfully. So, wisdom includes knowledge or information, but is not limited. Knowledge or learning or information is very useful in our everyday lives. We need knowledge to know how to use our computers, to know how to do our taxes, etc., etc. <clears throat> but that's not wisdom, that's information. Wisdom is much broader, much more inclusive. Wisdom is beyond duality. So, you know, as human beings, we have a tendency to divide our world um, in dualities, right, wrong, good, bad. Wisdom is beyond that. Wisdom holds it all and is not so interested in right, wrong, good, bad, judging. It's not about judging. Sometimes people ask um, or suggest well, we need to judge. We need, it's important that we be able to judge what is good and what is bad, or what is right and what is wrong. In Buddhist practice, we don't say that. Judgment tends to be judging somebody as good, bad, right, wrong, etc. Wisdom is not about judging. As I said, it's important that we have discernment or discriminating wisdom that we see and understand what is helpful, what is not helpful, what is skillful, what is not skillful, what leads to happiness, or what leads to suffering. That's discernment or discriminating wisdom. That's not judgment. If any of you were here uh, on a Monday night, when was it? It would have been, I guess, a week ago, Monday night. And Gil talked about how, for him, he has no interest in clinging. There's nothing to cling to. And so he has no interest in judging. He does not judge people. He finds that not interesting and totally unnecessary. So, wisdom is beyond judging. There's no clinging in wisdom, there's no grasping or holding on to anything. As you know, this is what the Buddha determined was the origin of our suffering, our clinging, our grasping, our holding on to things, to the way we want things, to our beliefs, even to the idea of this separate individual self. And it's that holding on, that clinging, that leads to our suffering. So wisdom is beyond clinging. There's no, there's no grasping or um, thirsting, as we say, in wisdom. Treat everyone and everything with loving compassion. When you see no difference between the sacred and the profane, the saint or the sinner, that is the ultimate wisdom. We could say no difference between our spiritual life and our everyday life. One and the same. wisdom, the word in Sanskrit is prashna, the word in Pali is pana, sees things clearly, sees things as they truly are. Not often the way we see things, that is full of misconceptions or is projecting what we would like to see, what we think should be there, what we wish were there, but seeing things clearly. So on the Eightfold Path, the first two steps, the first two Um, sections are considered the wisdom factors. The first is wise view, and the second is wise understanding or intention. So what does that mean? What does wise view entail? Again, there are different ways that it can be talked about. One way is that wise view sees and understands the four noble truths. You know, the heart of Buddhist teachings. The first truth being the acknowledgement of suffering. That there is suffering inherent in this human life. And it was because of this suffering that the Buddha set out to determine what was the cause and how could it be ended. So the second truth is that it's our clinging, our grasping, or another way of saying it is anytime we want things to be other than how they are. So that can be resisting how they are. It can be grabbing or clinging, wanting more of how things are. Either way leads to suffering. The third truth is that there is indeed an end to suffering, that we can, in this very life, bring an end to our suffering. And the fourth is the eightfold path that we walk or that we practice to bring an end to our suffering. So that's part of wise view. Another way of talking about wise view is seeing clearly and understanding the three characteristics of existence. This is vipassana. This is insight. When we see clearly, when we have the insight into the three characteristics of our existence, the three characteristics of our life. And those are number one, impermanence. Sounds simple, but as we look at it, it's huge. It's really huge to get, to really get, that absolutely everything is impermanent. That everything is constantly changing, including us, right? We're all aging. We're all getting older and that means certain changes. If you look at your life, Everything changes, doesn't it? The good changes and the not-so-good changes. (laughs) Sometimes that's the good news, sometimes that's the not-so-good news. But in reality, everything is changing. Nothing stays the same. And that includes death. We don't necessarily like to think about that or look at it, but death is the ultimate impermanence. And Randy talked about the, um, the class on the heavenly messengers, which Aya Santusica and uh, Bill Buckholtz are doing. The heavenly messengers bring the news of old age, sickness, and death. And it's considered important in our Buddhist practice to meet or to face these heavenly messengers. Because when we don't face them, when we don't meet them, they catch us unaware. And they can be devastating, really devastating, as you all probably know. But when we face them with awareness and know that they will happen, it doesn't necessarily make them less painful, but we can embrace them, we can accept them, we can hold them as part of life because they are. Those are the three messengers. The fourth is um, was a monk, or spiritual practice, or uh, essentially what I've just been saying. That the good news is we can practice and um, and be freed from the anguish of the three messengers. So that's the first of the three characteristics. (laughs) And as I say that, I'm reminded, I'm chuckling, because in Buddhism we have so many lists. So there's the three or the four heavenly messengers and the three characteristics and the ten paramis. (laughs) Because at the time of the Buddha uh, there were not books, there was not things were not written down. Everything was uh, an oral tradition that was memorized, and so it's easier to memorize lists. At least that's what they say. I don't know if that's true, but (laughs) that's the explanation. So the second of the three characteristics is that of dukkha, or the inherent unsatisfactoriness again, of everything. We think that if we just find the right this or the right that, or, you know, we have good health, or we have the right partner, or on and on and on, that we will be happy. Finally, we will be happy. We will find happiness. But unfortunately, it's not true. It's not true. Nothing, nothing has the capacity to bring us lasting happiness. So we say everything is basically unsatisfactory. It may be quite nice for a period of time, but it doesn't last it wears out, or it dies, or whatever, and it doesn't bring us lasting happiness. Then the third of the three characteristics is probably the most difficult to understand, but it is the reality of the insubstantiality of everything. So you can see how these three characteristics are very uh, entwined. You know They're not so separate. We talk about a lot of things as if they were separate, but they're really not. They're really intertwined, intermingled, interdependent. So <clears throat> the inherent insubstantiality of things means that there is nothing that is solid and separate. Everything in life is interconnected, interdependent, we say. Everything depends on everything else. And nothing has an existence all of its own, including us. And modern physics is finding this now also. Everything is in relation. Nothing arises on its own. I think it's very interesting when modern physics begins to show exactly what the Buddha suggested 2600 years ago. So as I said, recognizing, understanding deeply the three characteristics of existence is another way of talking about wisdom. So it's not... It's not just knowing or uh, having the information about the Four Noble Truths, the Three Characteristics. Some people do that and they can talk about it. That's not necessarily wisdom. Wisdom is when we have a deep understanding, an experiential understanding of things. And we have made them our own. You know, the Buddha in his wisdom suggested that we should never take anything just because he said so or just because some wise person said so but we should always check it out for ourselves. So that's what leads to wisdom. When we hear something, we say, okay, that's very interesting. Let me see. Let me look at this. Let me study this and see. Is this this true for me? And if it is, then we accept it then we internalize it. And that's wisdom. When we know because of our own experience, because of our own deep understanding that something is true, then that is wisdom. So wisdom can also be talked about in terms, in terms of skillful means. That is, seeing clearly what is skillful or helpful and what is not. What leads to happiness And what leads to suffering? Looking at actions, understanding the karma. Karma means action. Understanding the um, fruit of karma or the results. What do our actions lead to? then we have discriminating wisdom. Then we can decide what action to take. What will bring us happiness or um, satisfaction? And what will bring us suffering, unhappiness, dissatisfaction? Lama Surya Das says, Wisdom is a deep understanding of patterns and relationships, causes and origins. Insight into the implications of our thoughts, words, and deeds. So, seeing with as much clarity as we can, what our actions, and our actions include our thoughts and our words, as well as our deeds. What will they lead to? And then we can choose happiness if that's what we want. Another way of talking about wisdom is that wisdom is the opposite of delusion. Jack Cornfield wrote a book called The Wise Heart. You may have seen it. Some of you may have read it. Very wonderful book. And he has a chapter that's titled From Delusion to Wisdom. So much of our everyday existence involves delusion, not just our own, but other people's and the culture, the society. So much of what we take for being real, authentic, true <laughs> is not. It's, it's not seen clearly. And so we call it delusion. Delusion because we're misinformed. We're not seeing things clearly. We may have erroneously learned something. We may be in denial about something. We may turn away from something. Uh, that's the definition of Ignorance, that we turn away from knowing something, from the truth. We may have a misconception about something. In fact, we have many misconceptions. How many times has something happened and you make up a story in your mind about what that was about or why so-and-so did something or didn't do something only to find out it was not like that at all. We all do that. The mind is conditioned to do that. So what we need to do is become aware of it. Check it out. How do we know that that's really what it is? Are we sure? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. So having an open mind, a flexible mind, a mind that is willing to see things in many different ways or from many different perspectives. The opposite of holding on to a view, allowing ourselves to say, Well, you know, it looks like it, but I don't know. Maybe it is, maybe it is not. Even things that somebody else is so absolutely certain is true. Can we hold an open mind? Say, well, I'll consider it, you know, makes sense, but maybe not. Again, how many times have all of us held so tightly to something, some idea, some view, some belief, again, only to find out later it wasn't true? I have done that, so I have learned for myself that often when i'm the most sure something is true you can bet that's when i'm wrong <laughs> so i catch myself now when i'm very very sure that that's true mm, that's a good place to question it may not be sometimes we hold on most tightly to that which is not true for you know any number of reasons. So Suzuki Roshi suggests it is wisdom that seeks wisdom. So it's the wisdom within us that seeks wisdom. It's said that There is innate wisdom. Our true nature is wise. But we don't realize that. And so we go seeking (laughs) in lots of places for wisdom. When really, if we turned inward, we would find it was there. That's a lot of what meditation is about. Turning inward and discovering our own innate wisdom. Sometimes I liken it to a dirty windshield on a car. The windshield itself is clear. However, after driving, it gets dirty. Uh, There may be rain, dirt, there may be bugs, (laughs) all kinds of things that make the windshield not clear and we can't see clearly. But what we have to do is clean it. (laughs) When we clean off, the windshield, then it's clear again. It's bright. So we say that our mind is naturally luminous. It is naturally clear and bright. It has been so, so cluttered up with conditioning. And so our job is to wipe away To clear off a lot of that old, unnecessary, maybe untruthful conditioning. And allow the natural state of our mind to shine. So how do we do this? (laughs) We practice. We practice. We recognize, we learn to see things as they really are. We learn to see how we misperceive things or how we come up with ideas and then latch onto them and hold them. And of course, this takes time. We don't see all these things overnight. But with practice, wisdom develops gradually. Gradually, gradually. So in Zen practice, they often use koans. Koans are hmm, statements that aren't necessarily rational, like what is the sound of one hand clapping? Or does a dog have Buddha nature? And they're not meant to have a specific rational answer. They're meant to sort of blow open the mind and see things in a new way, see things in a different way and learn to hold things without having a specific definite answer. There are many wisdom stories in Buddhist practice. Uh, Many uh, animal wisdom stories. Many of the stories are told in terms of animals. And these stories, again, have a way of pointing to something, of telling us something, but in a different way. Stories are great ways to hear things, to learn things, Um, often much more poignant than telling us something. We can hear it, we can get it in a story form. So we practice sincerely, consistently, with the intention of developing, cultivating wisdom. And slowly but surely, it develops. I'm remembering back when I first started practice 30 years ago now. Um, my family would ask me, "Why? why do you do this? And for several years, my answer was, I don't know. But I kept doing it. I kept going. There was something that drew me. And then after several years, I began to notice in my life changes that had happened almost out of my awareness. So I was no longer doing this or no longer holding on to that or um, many things I had let go of. I just had lost interest in. That wasn't necessarily intentional. <laughs> the practice was certainly intentional and sincere. And then things changed all on their own things fell away all on their own. Some things we want to specifically cultivate or specifically let go of, but much happens when we practice. So I'll end with just this bit from the Dhammapada. This is Gill's translation of the Dhammapada. And this is chapter 6, the sage. Like someone pointing to treasure is the wise person. Who sees your faults and points them out, associate with such a sage. Good will come of it, not bad, if you associate with one such as this. Interesting, isn't it? Mostly we think the opposite. We don't, we don't want to associate with somebody that points out our faults. But this is suggesting mm, that might be your best teacher. Let one such as this advise you, instruct you, and restrain you from rude behavior. Such a person is pleasing to good people and displeasing to the bad. Do not associate with evil friends. Do not associate with the lowest of people. Associate with virtuous friends. Associate with the best of people. One who drinks in the Dharma sleeps happily with a clear mind. The sage always delights in the Dharma taught by the noble ones. Irrigators guide water, fletchers shape arrows, carpenters fashion wood, sages tame themselves. As a solid mass of rock is not moved by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise or blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the Dharma. Virtuous people always let go. They don't prattle about pleasures and desires. Touched by happiness and then by suffering, the sage shows no sign of being elated or depressed. So we may have Two minutes. <laughs> Does anybody have a question or something you'd like to say? <laughs> hmm I thought that I heard that it was said that most of life is unsatisfactory. I think that was number six or something quite a while ago. And so that's what I'm asking. Did I hear that correctly? That life inherently is unsatisfactory. That there's nothing that brings lasting happiness. No no thing, no pursuit that brings lasting happiness. So that's why we practice. The Dharma can bring us freedom which is the only lasting happiness. Everything else comes and goes. States of mind come and go. Uh, Physical things come and go. Freedom brings lasting happiness. So, like so many things, just hold that. If it doesn't make sense or it's like, what? (laughs) Hold it. Just hold it. Try not to argue, but to hold it. Really, is that right? And check it out. You know, check it out in your everyday lives and see is that true or is it not? Is there anything else? <laughs> <laughs> With yes. Um, I guess I'll heard something like this. It should be okay. Thank you. Um I I think you mentioned that, you know, uh, just sort of seeing things as they are and perhaps accepting them as they are or holding them as they are. Um, How do you balance that with, you know, many of us have a drive to perhaps change something for the better, for yourself, for others, for the world? Um, Usually that's encouraged. Uh, <laughs> right, uh, how, right. <laughs> how do you balance that? <laughs> That's a very good question, and there's no quick, simple answer. Um, just quickly, I would say, we don't focus so much on changing things or making things better. There's a phrase in the Tao Te Ching that I love that says. So you think you can improve on life? I don't think it can be done. (laughs) We are always trying to improve, and as you say, we're encouraged. What if life is fine just the way it is? And that we learn to accept and live with life just as it is. a big task, <laughs> because everything around us does not support that. Everything says, oh, you should change, you should work hard to change. So I'm reminded of what Ram Dass says, that life is perfect, or the, wor- the world is perfect, including our efforts to change it. <laughs> sort of a koan. <laughs> So thank you all. I'm sorry if you were going to say something. It's a couple minutes after nine. Let's stop, and I'm happy to stay around. Uh, Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, if it's true that everything is all one, our egos are truly illusory, why do we even have them in the first place, and why is it so hard to merge with everyone else, so to speak? (laughs) Because we're conditioned that way. We're conditioned from the time we're born. And is it possible to merge with everyone else? In Buddhist practice, we don't talk about merging. What is possible to do is let go of this um, tight clinging to our separateness, mm-hmm. our egos. You know, again, the ego has a function in this relative world. It helps us to navigate the relative world. As long as we understand that it is a construct, it is an idea. It's not real. You can't find an ego anywhere. That's a satisfying answer.
1: I'm sorry? That's
0: a satisfying answer. <laughs>